So today on The Culture of Tech, we have Adrian LaFrance, editor of TheAtlantic.com, the online arm of the famous and august print publication, The Atlantic Monthly. She also happens to be one of my favorite editors and journalists, having covered the intersection of technology and culture for The Atlantic and many other publications for, oh, at least over a decade now. In other words, she's a natural for our show. And so welcome to The Culture of Tech, Adrian. It's an honor to have you here. Thank you so much for having me and for all of the nice things you said. I have more. I just actually just didn't say. <laughs> but uh, I remember you edited one of my articles in the past. I think is was it the Prodigy one? I don't know. Oh, yeah. That might have been the first one we worked on together. Today, I'd like to talk about journalism, how it has changed and is being changed by technology, especially the rise of social media. Let's just go back to the very beginning and talk about, first of all, where are you from? I don't know a lot about you personally. Sure. Um, so I was born in Baltimore and then moved around a bunch growing up um, and then spent my formative years in the Philly suburbs. When did you first know you wanted to be a journalist? Do you remember that moment or that time and what happened? That's a really good question. I always wrote growing up. Like I always had a notebook with me. Um, I remember reading Harriet the Spy, I don't know, maybe in third grade. And just thinking like that it would be awesome to just walk around with a notebook and like observe, even though the message of that book is sort of that you shouldn't be spying on people and writing down their every move. <laughs> um, I found it very appealing. Um, so that I don't think I, I understood that that could be translated into journalistic st- skill at that point. But looking back, I think uh, Harriet the Spy was formative. And then um, and then I majored in journalism in college. So I think by then I, I had a sense that I wanted to be a journalist, but I didn't know... It, it took me a little, a couple years to sort of find my way to the news um, and realize that news reporting is is really fun and worthwhile. It sort of started as just wanting to be a writer and then you ended up thinking, hey, I can make money as a journalist maybe. Yeah. Well, and also the public service aspect of being a reporter and I would say um, just being able to sort of speak truth to power and ask questions no matter, you know, of powerful people. I found it's a great uh, responsibility to ask questions on behalf of the public. And I just I've, I found that really appealing. Yeah, that takes a certain degree of bravery that I'm not sure I have to be a, a true full-blooded journalist, you know, like I'm not the kind of guy who wants to um, – challenge people that much. Uh, So do you feel like you're a brave person? You don't mind standing up to power and things like that? Um, I don't know if I'd call myself brave, but I certainly like challenging people. But no, I mean, yeah, I'll ask anybody the question that needs to be asked. Do you have a a family background in journalism or writing or anything like that? Not that I know of. Yeah, I don't think I have any journalists in my family other than me. That's kind of the same with me in, in that I never thought I would become a professional writer. And it sounds like you you took an interesting, circuitous path, too. So, I mean, I did study journalism in college and again in grad school. But I did, like, for a while, I thought maybe I wanted to be, like, a music journalist. And then for a while, I wanted to be a sports reporter. Um, And then I kind of discovered politics reporting. And then from there, it was like, okay, I love the news. (laughs) How did you – I know you focused a lot on technology, How did you pivot into covering technology so much? Yeah, that's a good question. It sort of happened organically, I would say. So I, um, 
I worked uh, in 2012, I worked at Neiman Journalism Lab, uh, which is a newsroom within the Neiman Foundation at Harvard University that covers the future of news. So um, looks at how the journalism industry is changing. And of course, you know, inherently it ends up being that you look a lot at sort of the technological forces that are driving that change, or at least in 2012, that was the case. And certainly that's still the case now. Um, and so I think a lot of the work I did there, as well as just sort of my natural interests, um, at when I became a freelancer for a time, ended up being like, I would gravitate toward pitching stories having to do with tech or media or how information systems are changing. Um, it's just the kind of thing that I'm really interested in. And so uh, eventually when I came to work at The Atlantic, the job that I was offered was first as a tech reporter. So um, I enthusiastically took it and here we are. <laughs> so the technology thing, do you, is it just because technology is the hot topic right now? Obviously, technology is changing everything in a rapidly accelerating way. Or do you have a, any hobbies in technology, any computer-related stuff? Yeah, um, I'm trying to think. My, I don't. I mean, I am really interested in in computers and and video games and all sorts of various tech things. Um, I also just think looking at the world through a technological lens is is just a really to me, a really compelling way to sort of contextualize all kinds of things, right? Like, and that sounds almost obvious to say now because tech is so much at the surface of our daily lives. But I think that's, I mean, yes, certainly there have been periods of rapid change where that's more apparent, but that's always been the case. Like if you go back, I mean, I don't know, all through human history, um, technology sort of orients us in the world, defines our relationships with one another. Um, it's just, it's like, it's at the center of everything, I think. And it's to me really hard to disentangle, but which is why as, as technology changes, there's just like, I mean, no shortage of things to examine in terms of like how humanity changes. And then on top of that, when you look at like at this moment in history, um, when the most powerful companies in the world are tech companies and when the tech sector and Silicon Valley have have sort of taken on this enormous um, amount of influence in society, I mean, that that's just a compounding factor um, for sort of the the significance that tech already has in our lives. Well, that's a great answer because the thing is, is that technology, I mean, the history of technology is the history of humanity, obviously, because of fire and, you know, everything we've done, clothing and, and this, these developments have rapidly changed everything. But I guess uh, when we say the biggest companies today are tech companies, I guess we're saying they're, they're information peddlers. They're sort of selling data and information versus i mean obviously all companies are kind of tech companies i mean you sell a basketball there's technology involved there yeah no that's really interesting i i've had this conversation too with like if you look at sorry to take it back to journalism but that's okay that's the subject of this podcast i think oh good okay <laughs> good so but if you look at the history of tech coverage for instance the new york times for a dedicated tech section or tech columnist in like the 80s, along with the rise of personal computing, in part because those same fledgling tech companies um, were taking out ads. And so it was a calculation that the Times made um, in that moment that the readership might be interested in this subject. There's an editorial need for it and also advertiser support for it. So now, you know, 30, 40 years later, it's interesting to sort of interrogate the premise of do we need a dedicated tech section in the newspaper or on a website? And I still lean toward yes, but there is an argument to be made that 
there is a tech story in every story. And so what's the difference between the tech section and the business section versus all different entities, all different news organizations can define it the way they they want. But um, but it is sort of interesting to think of how tech coverage came about in the first place and how different the information and tech environments are now. Like it's not specialized anymore, that's for sure. Yeah. So the rise of the personal computer made John Markoff start writing at New York yeah. Times. And uh, it's an interesting point, thinking about the inception of that. And I guess it all centers around the personal computer as a consumer product where companies were selling something you use to manipulate information instead of just a product that brushes your teeth or, you know, cures a disease or, you know, makes you run faster. I have no idea. <laughs> right. Bionic pills, you know, those, that kind of thing. So let's talk a little bit about what you do at The Atlantic now. What does being the editor of The Atlantic website mean? Well, it means that I write slightly less now than I used to, which is actually great. I I worried a little bit that I would miss it a lot. And I still write a little bit here and there. It's a tremendous privilege. I mean, I'm this is partly my personality, but also partly a function of the job. I mean, I really do wake up every morning, like incredibly excited to go to work. <laughs> it's just such a, it's such a, it's such a privilege. I mean, it's this institution in American journalism and I'm surrounded by the smartest reporters and editors that I've ever worked with. Um, and at a time when, you know, it's a really sort of chaotic moment in, um, in history and which, I mean, you can say for any time, frankly, but it does feel particularly chaotic now. Um, and so, yeah, so I, on a day-to-day level, I help coordinate coverage. I edit, um, some pieces. I think about sort of coverage planning to come, um, hopefully get to do some exciting hiring, just, I mean, all kinds of things. And, and it's fun to have challenges across different sections rather than just being focused on just technology or science or health. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been wonderful so far. Yeah, so it's you know the rise of technology, like you were talking about, is is sort of the hottest story in the world right now. Like you're just you know the rise of those big companies, the media companies like Facebook and Apple, that are they're mediating human experience now. Huge. You know they're stepping in between a person's perception of reality and reality itself, and they get to change the gates that that let things in and let things out. And is that frustrating to you? at the Atlantic that Facebook has so much power over, you know, things like that have power over what readers can see since so many people are getting their news through Facebook and things like that. Yeah. I mean, I think Facebook is just endlessly fascinating to me on so many levels. So, I mean, yeah, I guess on one level, it's anytime a news organization is relying on a third party company to reach its readers. And that company is also scooping up the vast majority of the ad revenue, which is the business model upon which journalism traditionally has relied. Um, Of course, there can be sort of a fraught relationship there. That being said, I mean, if you think about it from the perspective of the reader, like to me, this is a really exciting time in journalism. I mean, it's for journalists too, but also just like to pause for a minute and just think a decade or 11 or 12 years ago, people had flip phones. (laughs) And now you can be reading any, I mean, smartphones are completely amazing. And to have the 
the distribution of open platform social publishing sites. On top of that, I mean, it's it's complicated, certainly, but it's just the potential for humans who are interested, who are curious and want to access information. I mean, it's just, it's really still astonishing to me, even a decade after the smartphone first appeared. Yeah, it's incredible. It brings up other questions, though, which is, can you trust the veracity and the truth or the accuracy of the information you're reading from all these sources all over the place? Right. And yeah, I think, I mean, I have real concerns about media literacy. And I, the bigger concern I have is just this, the declining trust of, of journalism in institutions and the extent to which that distrust is being sort of flamed by politicians, including the president of the United States. I was thinking about this this morning, actually. There was a a tsunami watch because of an earthquake off of Alaska. And so Hawaii and some parts of Alaska, and I don't remember where else, but around sort of the Pacific Rim, there were some some tsunami watches in effect. And, you know, this happened early in the morning. I went to the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center, which I know is a, a place for accurate information about the latest alerts. I see that the watch has been canceled. So it seems, you know, there is no major threat known at the time. And then I went over to Twitter and it's just like all over Twitter, tsunami warning, mm-hmm. like no one had, there was no sense that it had. That's a madhouse. Exactly. And then on top of that, if you Google like tsunami Hawaii or some some sort of general terms like that, uh, one of those, I don't know the proper Google terminology for this, but there was a little box that pops up that's like tsunami warning, what to do. And it made it seem as though it was still active. And so I'm thinking for the average person who doesn't know whether they may be in an emergency situation, wants information right away, do most people know to go to the official source, this Pacific Tsunami Warning Center, versus their local news, versus are they just looking at Facebook or Twitter, or are they just Googling? And and so what information are people getting at key moments? That's a real concern. That's a real public safety concern, not to mention the larger issue of declining trust in, in legitimate news institutions, which is profound. Yeah. This trust in authority in general is declining. I mean, I think that our biggest challenge in the future is just the fact that anyone will be able to create any reality they want and, and push it out to everyone. And you won't really be able to tell by our current standards what's real and what's fake. I mean, you won't yeah. be able to tell. Like, you know, you've I think you've written articles about those, uh, you know, video generator things where they made Barack Obama say something yeah. he didn't say. And they make audio sound like someone's voice that they didn't say. And there's so much potential trouble coming from all that stuff and geez it's just do you think about that are you looking down the line as a journalist and editor of the time when that's going to be the case oh totally well and i worry too about um especially as the the business model uh for journalists goes back toward relying on reader subscriptions at what point then do we have an information ecosystem where the free information is of lesser quality and reliability and then you possibly are paying to get the essential information that is more likely to be true. And so does that contribute to different classes of informed people? And what's the journalistic responsibility to serve those people? I mean, you'll, you see like in times of major breaking news, often the New York Times will lift its paywall. So there, I mean, people are thinking about this stuff, but yeah, I mean, you mentioned the Barack Obama lip syncing trick. That's completely insane. And the fascinating thing about that, too, is that 
the reason that technology exists, like the reason the people who are working on that stuff are working on it in the first place is not, they say, to enable like the spread of hoax misattributed video quotes, um, but because they want to have better quality video for FaceTime or Skype or whatever video calling in low bandwidth situations. So like this is almost more disturbing because it's like people's hearts are in the right place, their intentions are good, but the possibilities for misuse are just endless. Yeah, so they synthesize your face instead, which is funny. Right. Yeah, that's the. This is the thing that I've I've come to realize. I wrote an article recently about Joyce Weisbecker, who was one of probably the first female video game developer, and her dad was a pioneering computer scientist at RCA. And he he had this interesting way of thinking about software. He compared it to a magic trick. Oh, interesting. And and I kept thinking, why is it a magic trick? You know, why that metaphor? And I finally realized that it's because everything a computer does is an illusion. It's all just a bunch of ones and zeros and switches and layers and layers and layers of illusion on top of illusion. Totally. And so if you have anything that's software, it can be faked in any way, you know. And as our reality now is coming to us through our phones, which are software, through, you know, anything that you can possibly imagine that can be presented on screen, any way of manipulating those pixels can be done with a computer in the future, given enough processing power. And, and that's... You know, we're staring down the barrel of a crazy cataclysm of uh, truth hitting a wall and smashing into a thousand pieces. Yeah, that's totally fascinating. And the other thing that's happening at the same time as software becomes more widely used is that this is all happening as interfaces become more and more of a layer between people and computing itself. So like, again, back to the early days of the personal computer, and I think you certainly could probably speak to this because as I recall, you like do lots of cool computer tinkering yourself. This is true. Um, so like going back to the early days, people using the personal computer had to have some degree of knowing how to work with the interface on a pretty, I mean, it was still like very user friendly, but you had to know some basic coding type stuff. Whereas now the interface just totally obscures any sense of computing that's happening for the most part. Yep. So you're talking about barriers of entry lowering yeah. in terms of generating content and things. And I think that's huge because at one point it took a lot of technical know-how to own and operate a printing press, for example, to distribute right. information. Um, it took hundreds of people to, to do that operation. Now one person, like a teenager or a kid who knows nothing about any of that, can push out information to millions of people. Yeah, And I see that honestly, as accelerating to the point where people can just generate a photorealistic movie on their PC and put it out. You know, I, I think that's coming because there will be so much AI assistance to handle these software people and these things where you won't need to have the technical knowledge to operate a camera or hire actors or anything else to do all that stuff. I mean, that's just the natural conclusion of it. And so I yeah. find that terrifying, and I stay awake at night <laughs> thinking about it every day for the last five years. So, <laughs> no, totally. I mean, this goes back to what you asked a moment ago about journalism. So, yeah, already you, you've we've seen um, automated programs replacing what would have previously been uh, basic journalistic work. Like there's, uh, I believe the LA Times has like an earthquake bot that, you know, 
USGS data feeds into this program that then knows how to spit out a very formulaic story about an earthquake that just uh, happened or whatever. Um, so yeah, so there there is automation. Um, I still think, yeah, we you get very quickly into some big sort of existential questions. Like I am inclined to believe that there's still something distinctly human about humans, right? But then if you try to defend that position, maybe you can't, right? Like, is it art? Not necessarily. Like, machines can make beautiful art. So so maybe we're just on the losing side of the battle. And yeah. eventually, news will be created for other algorithms by algorithms. <laughs> <laughs> right. And there'll be no... We'll just be like having a picnic at the park or something. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> let, let them fight out. I know there's already political bots fighting each other on Twitter, which is really funny. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking, yeah, just let them handle the political system. We'll just go have a picnic. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> walk in the woods until they drop a bomb on us or something. <laughs> You're so pessimistic. <sighs> I'm scared shitless, honestly. <laughs> this is one of the reasons why I started this podcast. It's like a therapy session. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. No, it's a, it, there's a lot, a lot of change and really complicated changes taking place. Definitely. Well, I wonder, I wonder if other people felt this way. In the face of other changes that changed, you know, like the invention of the automobile or freeways or even the invention of antibiotics and vaccines changed humanity in such drastic ways. But it just didn't happen so fast like it does now. The acceleration we're seeing, like the smartphone came out uh, 10 years ago, right? I mean, if you think about the modern smartphone, the iPhone, 11 years ago, and uh, we've already have a weird president because of that. Well, and I mean, on top of that, like that was only what, 10 years after the internet was really popularized to the masses. So that, I mean, that's really is a period of profound, profound change. Um, That being said, it's all relative in some ways too. Like if you look back at the 1890s, like when the telephone was new, that was another period of profound technological change that I think is harder to appreciate now because we're accustomed to all of these um, technologies that were new at the time. I was reading a, a biography of Tesla about, it talked a lot about the electrification of the United States. Just right. uh, It's funny how we take that so much for granted, but it had so many um, side paths and so many decisions had to be made before we had a standardized electrical grid with a single the single way of working on AC power and the, the frequency and the, you know, all that stuff, we just take it for granted. And, um, I, yeah, I, there's a lot of, been a lot of huge changes in the past. In fact, there's been a lot of horrifying, terrifying things that have happened to people like flu epidemics, uh, polio, world wars and stuff that we don't have to deal with now. So I guess I should just be happy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's the spirit. It's actually not that bad. Right. Yeah. My great grandparents had 10 or 15 kids apiece, and half of them died of childhood illnesses. I can't imagine oh, how depressing yeah. that would have been, you know? Yeah. It's, I know it's hard to take stock of like once something becomes normal and we take it for granted. Right. So no, totally. Do you cringe when you hear the term fake news like I do? Yes, I don't use that term. (laughs) Because it's so loaded with... Well, it's totally imprecise and it's sort of, it's weaponized against the free press. So, and its cultural meaning is 
has taken on this whole thing. Like when someone says fake news, they're not just saying, oh, that's false information that was presented as a news article or, oh, that, you know, it's this loaded cultural meaning that, that chips away at the trust in journalistic institutions. So I, I do not use it lightly. Do people hurl terms at you at the Atlantic about, you know, fake news, this, you're too liberal, you're too this? Do you have any of that going on? Yeah, I mean, on Twitter, everyone's saying everything, right? But I, I mean, I will say the Atlantic is is of no party or clique. That has been our motto for more than a century now. And so people definitely, uh, like, I, I don't spend a lot of time in comment sections. Uh, and I... I don't engage too much with people who have have like ad hominem sort of attacks on Twitter, but um, but I'm always up for for actual criticism of of our journalism or my work personally. I mean that's essential, I think, and and that's actually like when people can respectfully disagree with one another, like that's a huge part of what's amazing about this information ecosystem. The trouble is like getting past all of the noise to get to the constructive conversations. That's why I feel like we're going almost as a country through this phase that has already happened on bulletin board systems and prodigy and stuff. When they had to deal with trolls, they were letting them run the conversation and, and run good people out of the place. And they were, they had to invent ways to deal with that moderators and things. We had to actually close the gates from the barbarians, you know, they're barbarians trying to bust down the walls of civilization. You can't just let that happen in civil discourse or it destroys the whole thing. And I think we're sort of learning the hard way and slowly or quickly, depending on (laughs) your your perspective, (laughs) it's not, it's not fast enough when, when, when the news cycle is one hour long, but yeah, we're learning. It's a painful process we're living through of trying to, I think, adjust our. We're gonna have to adjust our political systems. We have to adjust our our social systems, and um, it's just like we said, it's happening so fast. It's a lot to deal with at a time, and it may just end up that robots have to deal with it for us. <laughs> <laughs> right. This is this may be a stupid question. It's something I have written down. Do you think it was any easier being a journalist during a time before the internet or the social media? I have mixed feelings about this. I think um, the the cycle, the, the sort of the pace of the work was slower compared with today, but everyone was using the same tools. And so you still would have felt that same sense of pressure and competition and just because you had to use like a paper phone book and fax mm-hmm. machines or, yeah. or before that, not, not even those tools, um, doesn't mean that it felt slower with no comparison point now. But I mean, certainly, yeah, I mean, the, the level of pressure, I mean, we really are in a near real time news cycle now, which mm-hmm. is just, it's crazy. It, it's a different kind of pressure too, because it forces editors and reporters to figure out how to be selective when everything is can feel like it's breaking constantly. I feel like, you know, I'm on a merry-go-round spinning faster and faster and I'm afraid to jump off because which is better holding on or jumping off. And, you know, it's definitely intense. That's for sure. How do you think James Russell Lowell, the first editor of the Atlantic monthly would feel about today's news environment? Do you think he'd go insane? 
Oh man, that's a great question. I don't know. I mean, that's a really good one. Interesting thing. If you look back at past Atlantic editors is several of them have had strong feelings about like what they considered to be a deterioration of culture and like sort of a crazy chaotic moment at their point in history. So to me, it's more of a reminder that any person feels that their moment in history is the most whatever. Um, but yeah, I don't know. That's a really good question. Um, I'm not sure. Obviously, you, you can't know, but it, I think it was something like 1853 or so when he was editor. And um, I was like I said about that Tesla book in the late 1800s. It says, oh, Tesla took a break. He, he spent a year traveling Europe like if you did that today, by the time you got back, you know, the technology would be completely different and you couldn't be competitive at all in any possible way, you know. But he, he had time to just stroll around for a year and get right. some air and then come back and invent an alternating current. Well, that reminds me, actually. I found um, there's this in 1973, early 1973, the Atlantic editors at the time wrote a sort of jokey memo that they published in the January 73 issue um, about uh, articles they did not want to read or edit that year. Um, and, and so I wrote a little piece for it about the Atlantic just cause I got a kick out of it. And, and it had me kind of looking back through news archives at that era of journalistic history. And I found this, um, this New York times story about the Atlantic from, let me tell you the year I'm looking at it right now from 1966. Um, and it says, this is from the New York times, Quote, deadline pressures have been relative on the Atlantic. Ranking editors are encouraged to wrench themselves away from the pressures of the telephones and of secretaries with appointment books in hand in order to travel, go fishing, meditate, or whatever fits the mood. <laughs> <laughs> and that made me laugh just because it's like we are not taking a break from the news to go fishing these yeah. days. Uh-huh. Um, but so, yeah, and the pressures of the telephone just sounded kind of quaint in a way. Have you seen those old – I was doing some family research one time uh, in the early 1900s, and I ran across this section of the paper that said stuff that was a lot like Twitter. It's like, the Johnsons are going out of town until February 2nd. They will be back on February, you know, whatever, you know, and, and someone has, has looking for a bicycle or they've – you know, it's just all these little snippets of what everybody is doing in the community. Have you seen those? Yes. In fact, I wrote about this once. Um, I'll have to find it for you, but it's fascinating there. It's basically, there used to be a, for decades, there used to be a sort of very Twitter like feed printed. I mean, static obviously, but printed, um, in the times among other places that basically is, as you describe, like community announcements. So a lot of it would be like the steamship, whatever arrived at port or didn't arrive or whatever. Um, I'm trying to think of other kinds of examples, um, yeah, the one I just remember is that they're going on vacation because it was some of my my great great grandfather. Oh wow! And his, you know, my great great aunt or something were going to Kansas to meet, meet somebody in Anadarko and uh, for a month, and then they'll be back on, you know. And I just that blew my mind when I saw that. Yeah, so I wrote this piece called. This was earlier this or last year. I wrote this piece called "Social Media in 1857." Um, of course, you did. I know. It's very adrian Um, But they are telegraph items. It's not just community announcements. So it's like they they cast this at the time as like the telegraph news service. So it was very like high tech at the time. Um, the way the, the exact wording the Times used was latest intelligence by telegraph to the New York Times. And then it would be things like I said, like the steamship Philadelphia has arrived um, or 
uh, let's see. Oh, like an item about muskets that had been loaned to Maryland um, during the Civil War. So yeah, I mean, it's it basically was Twitter, but Telegraph and in the newspaper. <laughs> so that's why I say history. History is like a fractal. It's a self-similar uh, re- repeating pattern that just gets bigger over time. So I always say we are sort of facing the same problems that have been faced before. It was just in the past, it was like a microcosm of what we have now. It may have been slower and smaller, but oh man, that is incredible. I and mean, can you imagine the, the telegram uh, must have, or the tele- telegraph, I mean, must have blown everyone's minds like this instant information from around the world and Totally. And people actually freaked out. Like there was this whole, like this whole panic where, um, and I'll I'll pull this up. Let's see. August 19th, 1858. This was a New York times article. Um, I wrote about it for the Atlantic back in 2014, but people were worried about the telegraph being quote, superficial, sudden, unsifted, too fast for the truth. Um, they worried that it would render the popular mind too fast for the truth. But else, let's see. One one quote was, 10 days brings us the mail from Europe. What need is there for the scraps of news in 10 minutes? How trivial and paltry is the telegraphic column? So it's so Twitter-like, right? So they had the same problem with lowered barriers to entry and too much information flooding. So how did they solve it? And how can we apply that to Twitter today? That's That's the answer, whatever they did. Well, but I don't know that it is. I mean, I think it was like, if you look at what replaced, well, first of all, there wasn't like a mass, there was still a gatekeeper for the telegraph, like the, the newspapers were the ones printing the telegraph items or the, um, radio networks eventually maybe were reading them. But, um, but yeah, I think we are in uncharted territory in many ways. I don't know. It's relative, obviously, because at that time, like what you just read, the fact that any information could come in over the wires was like a probably a panic-inducing thing because it wasn't being gatekeeped in the same way as like a book or something or news, you know, some other news coming from letter or something. A letter, before, yeah, you know? totally. Because I, I it's hard to imagine getting the news from letters written all over the world and repeat, repeating that, but it's it's incredible. So my last question. I mean, we could talk all day, but my last question is, do you feel a continuation or a stewardship from your earlier editors at The Atlantic? Is there a responsibility you have on your shoulders that's carried down? Yes. I mean, of course. Like, The Atlantic is an institution, and Americans have been turning to this institution since 1857 to help them contextualize the world and understand the American idea. And, um, it's just a total privilege to be able to work here, let alone be in a leadership position where I can help sort of shape our coverage. And, um, and so absolutely, I feel that it is, uh, an, an opportunity that extends far beyond myself or my time and stretches back into the past and into the future. And, and hopefully I do a good job in <laughs> being a steward. I think you're doing a good job so far. I oh, mean, thank you. <laughs> there's no question why they hired you for that position because you're brilliant. I mean, geez. Thank you. Uh, I'll tell you something from my point of view as a, as a writer, which is I've only done maybe four, I don't know how many, four or five things for The Atlantic. But the first time I had an article in The Atlantic and I did some vanity searching for my name and it popped up in the list of The Atlantic articles that had 
Albert Einstein in it and stuff. That really blew my mind. Right? It's amazing. Totally. I know. We have a very esteemed group of writers who have contributed over the years. So um, unless you have any other points to make, uh, we have to cut this off because we'll just talk for a thousand hours. (laughs) No, this is great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's been a a great pleasure to have you on. And um, I hope you have a good day. Same to you. Talk soon. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. Let's go.